you know, we're talking, we're talking about this idea of things and, and you know, your ideas in, in the, in the transpersonal perspective, I can see how there could be a pragmatic, um, existential, existentially valid notion behind it that there is no thing. It's all, you know, energy events and it's all just, you know, uh, you know, electrons and, and quarks, which are just little energy things, which are non-material. And so then that can bring about, you know, so the, the loss of the self to ephemeral consciousness so that you can be open to divine inspiration from God, for, from, for, but, but God is, is energy or something. Okay. So I understand that now, but then there also, there's the idea though, that there is things though. And, and so what, so, so our, our sense perception actually tells us that, that there is, you know, energy events and that, you know, we look at the quarks and we look at it. And the reason why we believe that is because when we collide par particle accelerators at a fast enough speed, then we're getting these, you know, we, we're seeing that things are really just energy events, maybe even strings, if you want to believe in string theory, because, you know, the mathematics suggests perhaps string theory is accurate. So there's just little, little vibrations of strings. Now, is that, are those things or is, is that little vibrations of energy? Is that non-material? Any thoughts? Well, I'm not real clear on that. I'm, I'm just rethinking that whole is, issue. But the only thing that seems clear to me is that it is an event. Okay, but in, in one sense, it's an event is what I'm going to get. So, so yeah, the, the strings, okay, so, or, or, the, or the particle accelerator tells that. But still, that's our sense perceptions. And in a dream world, why is our sense perceptions telling us that? You know, somebody could, so, could completely dismiss that idea and say, well, our sense perceptions are a reality, that there is an re external reality. But again, in, if you want to look at it, the idea of if we're in a dream world, then it's all symbolic. <clears throat> Maybe both it's true. Both is true. Both is false. Again, what are any thoughts on that? No. You know, but... Uh, but I was, I was listening to, you know, William James book about pragmatism. And he was, he was talking about this idea that there's a, there's a kind of a debate between empiricists and rationalists and empiricists say, you know, look at empirical reality and the rationalists say, you know, like sense experience and the, and the rationalists say, well, no, the mathematical, they're, they're like, it's like Plato versus Aristotle. Aristotle's the empiricist and Plato's the, the rationalist and, and, and Plato's saying this world of forms and ideas and mathematics and stuff. <clears throat> and, and again, like, William James is doing the same thing I was doing and Heraclitus is doing. He was saying it's both. And he used like a metaphor, like where there, there's a squirrel on a tree and there's a guy walk going around the squirrel. But whenever he goes around the squirrel, the squirrel goes to the opposite side of the tree. So he can't be seen. And then, so the question is, is he going around the squirrel or is, <clears throat> is he not? And he says, well, it depends on what perspective you're looking at. It's both. And it, it, it depends on the, the pragmatic usage of it. Like any thoughts on that? So any thoughts? No, it's like, the, 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 and that's why I think the book of COVID is so good because it's like, okay, is the world spiritual or is it, is it uh, physical? Like, is it genetic Darwinism or is it creationism? It's both. The, the, the dream matrix allows for you to, to believe in both realities. You know, the, the Bible, are we going to look at it through a historical lens or are we going to look at it through a divine lens? Both. Like any, or in, in either, any thoughts of that? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very very plausible perspective. But but so so I was, I was gonna get at though. So okay, so yeah, the idea of events. But then at the same time, we don't, we don't want to dismiss. There are things, it, you know. The, the, okay, it's, it's energy events, but also they're they're coalescing into things that that seem to have you know, and, and that's the idea of like Plato's world of forms. 
that there's these forms and stuff. <clears throat> I don't want to deny the reality of these things. But again, so so there's things and there's not things. And that's what I like, the contradiction. Like, any thoughts on that? No, that's very plausible. All right, so so this is, in this in this lecture, the guy's talking about, like, Aristotle and the idea of things. All right, ready? Tell me if you can hear it, ready? Good day. Our question for today is, what was the intellectual situation that the 17th century philosophers were confronting? Because this question will really set up the beginning of modern philosophy for us. Now, to do this, however, we have to review something about late medieval philosophy, which was the context in which modern philosophy began. Can you hear, Gemma? Oh, yeah, that's good. Unfortunately, to do that, we have to go all the way back to Aristotle and ancient Greek philosophy. Having done so, we'll briefly examine the great changes that motivated modern philosophy, most of all, the revolution, scientific revolution of the 17th century, and what problems it left for philosophers to solve. Now, we cannot separate the changes in philosophy from the monumental changes in Western society at that time. Medieval Europe, we have to remember, was a collection of feudal states locally ruled by landed aristocrats, populated by vast numbers of illiterate peasants, and dimpled by a small number of towns with merchants. The only literate members of society were essentially priests. Philosophy was done by priests, members of divine order. I've been feeling pretty good, Grandpa, because I've been lifting weights and stuff, you know? And, like, I'm, I'm, I'm in, like, a better state and everything. And I'm hopefully going to get pile boxes and stuff. And I'm just planning to, and I'm planning to get a new phone so I can start, like, you know, playing basketball and working out again, too. And I'm just, like, hopefully just planning to get, like, because I've been eating a lot of protein, too, so I've been feeling good. Any thoughts? That's good. The great universities of the largest cities. After the 13th century, one philosophical school of thought became so widespread among the major universities that it simply came to be called scholasticism, meaning the philosophy of the schools. Scholasticism was based in Aristotle's logic and metaphysics. To understand scholasticism, we have to begin by understanding something about Aristotle. Now, to understand Aristotle's metaphysics, we can begin with a question. What is there in the room, the car, the train, the plane, or the backyard that you're now in? Just take an inventory, a little imaginative in inventory. You may be surrounded by, if I asked you what is there, what exists in this room or in this space, you might label things like, well, there's tables, there's seats, there's people, there's books, coffee cups, electric wires, other people, furnitures, etc. There's some list of those things. Now, if I asked you to list those things in your immediate space, I wager that your list will look a lot like that one, only a little more detailed. Some smart cookie out there might mention not only are there books, but there are pages of books. Not only are there chairs, but chair legs. And then some ethereal type might well mention, well, there's also light and air. But in fact, in all such lists, much has been left out. There's a lot more, say, in this room. There are colors in this room. Uh, there is standing. There is breathing. There is listening. There's the directions right, left, up, down, before and after. That is, there are relations, activities, and properties of things, not just things that are present. It doesn't. Your list of things is not wrong. Yeah, it's good. So relations, activities, and properties, yeah. So, but I remember you, you said something about like, you know, relations don't like that idea because it, it implies duality, but at the same time, there's duality and there's not duality. You know what I mean? Any thoughts of that? Yeah. It means that you are thinking like a good Aristotelian. All realities, including properties, relations, and activities, are beings, or in Greek, Aristotle's Greek, 
usia, simply meant beings. Aristotle divided all the things that are, in any sense of the word are, into 10 logical categories. And it included things like the properties things have, activities, etc. But out of all these 10 categories of whatever is, in any sense of the word, is, out of all of them, one is primary. Aristotle gives priority to one of the 10. That one type of being, which is primary, are for him relatively independent physical objects. In fact, <laughs> tables, chairs, peoples, books, the kinds of things you mentioned in your imaginative list. The other nine categories of being are then understood by Aristotle to belong to and be properties of or predicated of those basic things. Wait, that's like him. Yeah, I didn't understand what what that, what he said there. This most basic kind of thing is parousia in Greek, or primary being, and in its familiar Latinized form, primary substance. For Aristotle, substances exist in the fullest sense of the word exist. The dog has being, let's say my pet dog is here, that dog has being in a fuller sense than its color or its posture or its activity. The color, the posture, the activity are properties of the dog. The dog is not a property of the color, the activity, or the posture. We say the dog is brown. We don't say brownness has a dog under it. We say the woman is sitting. We don't say sitting is instantiated in the woman. You'll notice this has to do with the subject and predicate form of language. Aristotle's distinguishing what the subjects of our sentences ought to be from the predicates or properties we say about them. He does it. Yeah, it's clear. But but I understand what you're trying to say too. That like maybe our language affects you know reality and our perception of reality, which might not be completely accurate. In that like okay, maybe there is no woman. Maybe it's womaning, sitting, ing, sitting ing. You know. But at the same time, maybe not. Maybe there's an eternal aspect, a, a form of that woman. So maybe both. Like any thoughts of that? Well, that's certainly possible. So I understand the transpersonal perspective that if you want to say womaning, then that takes you out of the idea of a separate self, and then you can transcend, you know, and then you, and then maybe you can because because maybe the, the separate self idea gets you caught up in the ego, which contaminates and pollutes your consciousness. So then you can now see things outside of the ego body sense sensory sensory uh, experience based framework to maybe the truth reality, which is beyond the limitations of sense experience. Like any thoughts to that, but, it, but, yeah. but, or any thoughts to that? No, that's good. Or, or does it though? At the same time, we, we don't want to deny that we are within the sense experience and who's to say, maybe this, the idea that you're part of your sense experience, yeah, that's a part of reality. And if you want to see the whole reality, you have to take into consideration even those aspects of the contaminated view, observer subject. And that's a part of the reality with that, within the quadrant. You know, any thoughts on that? No. So the way to look at this is simply that Aristotle takes all the various features and characteristics of an environment and sees them as localized into, as properties of, one particular kind of thing in that environment, the substances. Now, the technical definition of substance is as follows. A substance contains parts, but is not a part of anything. And properties are predicated of it, but it is not predicated of anything. So once again, 
it's natural to say the tree is tall, but not tallness is instantiated in the tree. The tree is the subject of the sentence. Tallness is a predicate of it. Okay. Understood in this way, substance underlies or supports its properties. Hence, Aristotle sometimes referred to substance as hypokaimenon in Greek, which means the underlying. In practice, this meant that every independently existing physical object is for Aristotle, was for Aristotle, a primary substance. I'm a primary substance, the lectern is a primary substance, my tie is a primary substance, etc. Substance became, this humble little term substance, became the most important metaphysical term for 2300 years after Aristotle. It does it? No. The idea of substance. Because you would say that there is no substance, right? I mean, even like that was a Buddhist idea, like it's all emptiness, like any thoughts of that? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a conundrum. See, maybe it's just substance for those whose consciousness is capable only of discerning it as, as solid substance. But then, then, then here's the question though. Maybe that's all that, there, maybe your experience is really all that there is. And again, there wouldn't be no reality without the idea, like Kant was saying, like with if, or, or those other people, the relationships, there was with space, time and matter. Otherwise there is no reality. And maybe, maybe just the experience is all that there is. And, and the idea that there is an external world is not even accurate. It's all one quadrant ensemble. Any thoughts on composition? Yeah, well, that, that's what Sparrow would say. It's all consciousness. That's the yeah. only substance there is, is I mean, consciousness. That's, that's what Sparrow would say. And, and even, you know, when I was pointing out, if, if you, I, I gave you that book on uh, Schopenhauer, it even seems like Schopenhauer was kind of, uh, what's the word, like playing with that idea and entertaining that idea of like, you know, of that. And then even that, that, that like, I, I forget what the name of the book was, like the Buddhiva Kampina that I sent you, the Hindu one, where that guy's saying that, and, and Rama, uh, I forget the guy, like Ramahiri or something. You know, I sent you those those books by those guys too. And it seemed like they were kind of saying the same thing, right? But they, they're, they're, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't had the time to look at them yet. But their non-dualism isn't like yours. Like yours originally was everything is energy and you were, and you were taking for granted the external world and you were saying almost like consciousness was not real as an emergent property and and maybe and there, there's there's a truth to that too really i think that everything is a quadrant and and the mind consciousness and the reality is is both just the quadrant expression of relational capacities but in these guys view they seem to uplift consciousness as supreme and and they say that, you know, that's what they, they appear to be saying, the ideas. And, and that's their non-dualism. It's kind of like the opposite of yours. So you would have been like, yeah, Jesus, he's, uh, you know, multiplying the bread because everything is energy. And, you know, that, that, and you realize, like, any thoughts of that? No. So, but, but I, I thought that was a little bit limiting because the way that I saw it is, you know, I, I, I experienced synchronicities and stuff and almost like a dream world. And that's what I thought that Yogananda was talking about too, like. But I thought that you were kind of limiting it to this, to that, that thing. And that kind of confused me. And then I, I tried to adopt your viewpoint for a while, for like four years or whatever. But I, you know, after 2014, but it, it didn't resonate with me and I wasn't authentic and it wasn't what I knew. 
but you were saying, well, I never experienced the, the synchronicities and stuff like that. Okay. But I did, you know, and, and I, and I'm thinking that, you know, it, Jesus is multiplying a bread. It could, it could happen through your prism of, oh yeah, it's energy. Everything is energy. And you, you know, you could do it because it's all energy. Okay. Or it could just be the dream world aspect and in the quadrant, and it could just be metaphorical. And that could be, be with the dream world aspect too. Or, you know, like maybe Jesus didn't even exist as a figure. That, that could be an aspect. You know, like like Scientology says that he was just an implant. Or, or, or you know, the historical perspective. Maybe he did exist, but he didn't. Or, or maybe he did he maybe did those, those miracles, but maybe it was through the dream world. Or maybe it was your, your or maybe all of them. Like, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Maybe all of them. It meant the entity in question was independently existent. It exists as fully as anything does. But what I do know is the quadrant expresses itself. So, you know, Christianity is the second quadrant. It's belief, faith, behavior, belonging, and it takes on those characteristics, whereas Buddhism is the first. And within the, the stories, the quadrant pattern expresses itself. And that's what I see as primary and dominant, regardless of anything else. And people's perspectives, and, you know, there's, there's a Gnostic perspective. Okay, but there's still four main Gnostic schools, and it's still the quadrant within the Gnosticism. And it's still, so I see that as the primary and the supreme. Any thoughts on that? No contains its own qualitatively distinct principle of intelligibility, which explains its properties and its motions. It has a nature for Aristotle in a qualitative and explanatory sense. So what Aristotle would do, typically do in his philosophy and in his scientific work would be to, let's say, here, Cahoon, Lawrence Cahoon is one substance, a primary substance. We now need to figure out the essence or nature of Cahoon. And he would give a set of definitions of what makes me Cahoon. Now, in general, Aristotle is also famous for having split the difference between various earlier philosophers, earlier Greek philosophers, people like Plato, who believed that the ultimate nature of all things are ideal forms that are not physical at all, kind of like mathematical shapes or mathematical objects, and other philosophers like the atomists, who said that everything's controlled, con uh, constituted by little bits of material stuff, little atoms. What Aristotle said and said is, instead is, you're- It doesn't. No. So I'll say that you were, were gravitating more towards the perspective of everything is made of little atoms, but you went so far to say, well, those little atoms are not material. Okay. But also, but then there's also Plato's idea of, of these mathematical, but, but why do they have to be mutually exclusive? But then, you know, That's right. But at the same time, there's also these things. Why, why are we denying or dismissing the idea that there is, that there is Orion? Okay, okay, that's just made up of little particles and, and different combinations, but there still is, seems to be a thing. Any substance, again, like Cahoon is a substance or the lectern is a substance, any substance must have both form and matter. It must have material stuff out of which it's made, and it must have a structure or organization or essence. Any thoughts on No. So, yeah, structure and essence. Okay, stuff it's made, but then also an essence. Like, and I, this idea of form, too. Like, yeah, there's a form of a chair. This idea, like geometry, form, like any thoughts of that? Yeah. <clears throat> that makes it what it is. It's got to have both. In fact, Aristotle generalized this to a very famous doctrine of his, his doctrine of the four causes. Every substance must have four causes, not one. There's four different things which are responsible for the existence of any one primary substance. The substances, the causes are the material, the efficient, the formal, and the final. Just very briefly, if we take a ship in the harbor, let's say outside of Athens, what are the four causes of the ship? 
Well, one is material. The wood, the nails, the canvas, the ropes. Without them, there's no ship. But suppose I take the canvas, the ropes, all that material, throw it on the dock. Do I have a ship yet? No, because it's not in the shape of a ship. It's not in the form of a ship. So there's the matter of the substance. Then there's the form, which we can take to be the, the structural organization of all those pieces of matter. But suppose I put on the dock, I have my ship mass and we got wood and we got nails and they're laying on the dock. We know that's not a ship yet. Suppose I come along with the blueprint and drop the blueprint on top. Is that a ship yet? No, because we need an efficient cause, which is the activity that leads to the matter and form being brought together. So the efficient, someone actually has to build the ship. So the act of building is the efficient cause. We need one more cause. It was very important. We'll have a major role in uh, what we do in the next few. Hey, does it? No. Aristotle said, everything also has a final cause. The final cause is the goal or purpose of a thing. If you try to put the Greek most carefully, you would say it's the towards which of a thing. Now, this doesn't goal or final cause does not have to be an explicit idea. The ship's final cause is that we're going to sail it, let's say, for trading purposes. But uh, what's the final cause of an acorn? It's to become an oak tree. What's the final cause of a rock? Well, it's really just to lay on the surface of the earth. So the final causes are not all uh, elaborate purposes. Okay. Now, although he worked in every field. What idea the purpose of object? He does it. Well, see, I think he's talking about the function. What function does it serve? It's, it's what it what it's doing, not why. See, purpose is why. Function is what. Yeah, does it? No. And why do you make that distinction? Why is that important? It does. Well, see, there's a difference between between saying what what uh, what something is doing and why something is doing it and what's more important well they're, they're both necessary field the closest to aristotle's heart was arguable but again we, we also don't don't always know the whys and our whys are not accurate like like that one experiment where people were given like primings to, to want to leave early but then when they're asked, why did you leave early? They didn't know it's because of the primings that they were given from the essay that they read. And they thought it was just, oh, because I felt like it or, oh, because, you know, I was uh, feeling sick or, you know, people's wives, they don't really know any thoughts of that. Well, that's looking for a cause. That's not looking for a purpose. Any thoughts there? No. And what's the difference between that? Well, there are all kinds of causes. Cause it's too hot, cause I'm cold, cause I, I don't want to obey, I don't want to conform. There are all kinds of causes. Biology. Living things for Aristotle have what he called suke. The Greek word suke from which we get psychology is really just what it meant for the Greeks was essentially soul. Now their conception of soul is not like, let's say the modern Christian notion of soul. It's not an eternal, uh, ongoing, non-physical essence. Rather, by suke or soul, the Greeks merely meant the animating principle and it, what makes something alive. And Aristotle took that quite literally. That is, for Aristotle, there are three levels of soul. There's the vegetative soul, characteristic of plants. And for him, this is, simply means that plants have in them a level of suke or soul, 
which is responsible for the most basic activities of life, like metabolism, growth, nutrition, etc. You talk about the four levels of being. There was vegetative, there was mineral, which is the first one, which might not have a soul, but there's mineral, vegetative, animal, and then human. Animals, according to Aristotle, have a higher level of soul, characteristic of animal life, a moving, sensitive, passionate soul. They ground, they have perceptions of the world, they have desires, they have fear, they pursue prey. That's the animal level of soul. Lastly, human beings have a yet higher level of soul. So he just, it, this guy who's doing it, he just left out the mineral part, but that, that part is not a soul, right? does it? No. That's the rational soul, because we can rationally think and speak. What's important to remember is, in this developmental model of Aristotle's, which is rather sophisticated. We think about that, there's a rational soul, right? does it? Remember, that's the rational soul. No. Rationally think and speak. What's important to remember is, in this developmental model of Aristotle's, which is so rather... It's an idea of speaking, which is... But then again, can a dog speak when it's like barking? It's a kind of a form of speech, but it's not... They can't really convey... Simple, they, they can't talk about things. You know, they can't put together relational aspects of things. Like, any thoughts of that? Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Well, that's apparently true. Sophisticated. Each higher level organism retains the lower level of soul along with its higher level. In other words, in a human being, I still have a vegetative soul in me because I have to digest my food, grow, I have autonomic functions, my breathing, my heart rate are all managed automatically. That's the vegetative level. I then have my emotional, perceptual, instinctual level of soul. And then finally, I have my rational or abstract, ab the feature of my suke, which is responsible for abstract thought and for speech. And those are always linked for ourselves. Now, the aim of Aristotelian science was famously to classify all types of qualitatively different. I think a, a reason why a lot of people think that there's like, you know, transmigration of souls and stuff is, you know, if, if they want, even though, again, this is this is still looking at the world through uh, empirical lens and believing that the sensory world and what it's telling us is real, but they say that because of like the conservation of energy, this is like a scientific perspective of the soul, because of the conservation of energy, if you have all this consciousness from your brain, you know, all that accumulation of, you know, all the different synapses and stuff, creating the, these memories and all this stuff. Well, if you die, if there's, there needs to be conservation of mass, matter and energy in the universe, and where does that go? You know, any thoughts on that? No. To define them, relate them, and delineate their causes. Aristotle's physics was combined by other ancients with the Ptolemy's geocentric system of the universe. This was a picture common in ancient Greece and Rome of the universe as a closed system. Space is finite, not infinite. The Earth is at the center, that's why it's geocentric. The moon is the super earthly object, which is closest. Everything under the orbit of the moon, everything sublunar, which is the Earth, is made of the four classic elements. These were not developed by philosophers, but these were the common ways that the Greeks thought about the material elements of the world, namely air, earth, uh, water, and fire. So everything on Earth is somehow composed of a combination of air, water, earth, and fire. But the moon, and then all the planets and stars beyond them, it was believed, had to be made of a much more refined substance called ether. Okay, And the planets and the uh, ultimately the stars rotated around the Earth in a closed and rather cozy picture of the universe. Now, medieval scholasticism integrated Aristotle. It does it? No. 
Now, now somebody, somebody can say, no, but that's wrong. You know, it's, it's the, that's a heliocentric versus geocentric model. But at the same time, I would go so far as to say, again, both are true because if it is true that the, that consciousness is central to existence and stuff, or maybe even God created the world, you know, all that stuff, then yes, it would be kind of geocentric in that. But then there's also the heliocentric idea that, you know, from the, from the physical aspect, but again, you touch your sense perceptions. So again, they're both kind of true. In a way. Any thoughts there? Yeah. Yeah. Here. And with a certain amount of Platonism and even Neoplatonism, the latter being the work of the ancient Greek philosopher Plotinus. But the key fact to remember here is this. Scholasticism is essentially Aristotle plus Christianity. The medieval scholastics, they had their religion. They had an elaborate Christian theology. But what they didn't have in their religious thought was an elaborate, complex theory of nature in the natural world. So philosophers in the 13th century tried to merge the two. Now, there were problems with this fit. For example, if you just think about it, in Aristotle, there is no immortal soul. Aristotle was a pagan uh, living uh, several hundred years before Christ. Uh, the Greeks were polytheists, believed in many little gods, not one all-powerful eternal god. Uh, from Aristotle's point of view, there is no immortal soul. Clearly, you'd have to change that if you're a Christian and you're incorporating your Aristotle into your Christian religion. However, in many other respects, the fit was remarkably good. And the most famous synthesizer of these two views was St. Thomas Aquinas. His views, his philosophical work was originally condemned by the Catholic Church, but until years later, it became official church doctrine. So, in this new synthesis that Aquinas produced, and many other philosophers at that time uh, disagreed with Aquinas on particulars, but still accepted this big system that he put together, and this became scholasticism. In this view, once again, the universe is a closed system, cozy, with the earth at the center. Everything in it is a primary substance with properties. Everything in it has a final cause, which partly determines what it is and what it's for. And of course, the doctrine of final cause from Aristotle's non-Christian Greek philosophy fits beautifully with Christianity, because now you can just say, where does an entity get its final cause? God gives it its final cause. So everything in the universe is fitting together. All the purposes of all the substances in the universe fit together to serve God's plan for the whole. Okay. But note, I should... It does it? <coughs> no. So I would say the final cause is the quadrant. You know, any thoughts there? Yeah, yeah, well that that's your assertion, yeah. I should just say, it's not true, as it is often said, that the pre-modern universe gave humanity a privileged place at the center of things. For from scholasticism's viewpoint, the center of the universe where the earth was put is the lowest place. And of course, it was typical of classical Christianity to have a doctrine of sin. The earth is not the best place to be in the universe. It's the lowest place. All right. Now, Many social changes contributed. That's interesting. Uh, any thoughts on that? No. Any other? The Earth is a third planet from the Sun. The third three always has a connotation of being bad. The third quadrant. So, you know, and if you think about it, yeah, the Earth is a place full of war and stuff. And it, this is that pessimistic versus optimistic viewpoint. You know, it, which one is true? Well, both. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. But you you like the idea of optimism because. You would say you're because that, that's more existentially valid and they can bring, but at the same time, do we want existentially valid or do we want the truth? Any thoughts on that? 
No. See, there, there can't be synergy without entropy. But at the same time, yeah. So, at the same time, do we even want to have optimism or pessimism? Either way, we're putting a value on things rather than just seeing it as it is. Any thoughts on that? Well, but see, if you if you adopt whichever one you adopt has consequences. Hmm. And we and we can't discount the, the fact that people have you know emotional valences toward things, and and as you know re reality, we are tied to it. You know, and and we can't um, extract the human observer's emotional aspects of this. And to, to even like try to pretend that there's a reality without the human observer, I don't know. Any thoughts of that? The biocentric idea, any thoughts of that? No. Decline of the scholastic worldview once we got into the, especially the 15th and 16th centuries. First, you might. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, you know, to, even even like in, in Prahlad in the Hindu, his name means joy, and that's related to Vishnu. And joy can bring you closer to the flow, to transcendence of the self, to that oneness, your perspective. But at the same time, you know, the, the Shiva worshipers were pessimistic. They could also get in the flow. They can lose themselves too. But it's probably more effective to have the joyful component, joyful mode of being. You know, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, yeah, see, the, the pessimistic tends to make you vulnerable to judgmental thinking. Yeah, does it? The sky is falling. Yeah, yeah does it? No. The discovery of the new world in 1492. That discovery meant that the earth was not only much bigger than previously thought, but much more complicated. Perhaps more important was the Protestant Reformation of 1516. Since the fall of the Roman Empire and until 1516, virtually every person you could ever meet in Central or Western Europe was a Roman Catholic, with small pockets of Jews and Muslims in various places. Protestant Revolution ended all, Reformation ended all of that. At the same time, there is the long-term decline of the aristocracy and the concomitant rise of ro royal power and the middle or commercial class. Uh, I might just say- Wait, This is kind of interesting about like, Kant's antinomies, like he had these antinomies, and I forget the exact ones, but like one of them is that the universe is eternal, and one of them that it's finite, and it, that it had a beginning. Like one of them is like maybe like the universe is you know goes on forever when it's finite. But regardless, these are aspects of the mind, and it has to go through these like you know extremes or like pessimist, optimist, and stuff. But the, these mind things, these a priori mind aspects, are transcribed and transposed into the reality. Like any thoughts of that? No, like the idea of you know when people say okay well there's a multiverse which is eternal and, and, and infinite but then also there, there's a big bang of of universal brains that knocked into each other and that created the big bang so then at the same time we have the finite and the infinite coalesced any thoughts of that yeah See, maybe that's just a way of avoiding making a choice yeah but the thing is why, why do we have to even pretend like there, there is one or the other when if we're in a dream matrix, the dream matrix allows for both and allows for none. 
because the dream matrix you're, you're sensing and stuff, it's creating that. And it doesn't matter what it says because that's not real. What you're so maybe it's not a dream matrix. And maybe that too. And it doesn't. No. Uh, in the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages were not the period of great royal power. In the Middle Ages, the power of the king is was often described as primus inter pares in Latin, first among equals, meaning that the king has just a little more power than those powerful landed nobles, the aristocrats, and he only holds that power as long as he keeps them in line and satisfies enough of them. Okay, The feudal system is a decentralized system, but over time, for economic reasons and for political reasons, as time went on, the <laughs> aristocracies began to lose their power and the power of the king increased. And in the modern period, that also usually went together with the rise of a middle class, which made its money on trading. And so an entire nation state began to evolve in which there's a king at the top and the trading class. But, but one example I like to give is like, you know, there's Christianity versus Hinduism. Christianity says there's, there's no reincarnation in that the world is, is in, in, in the world had a beginning. Hinduism says that there's reincarnation and the world's eternal. And then, but you know, the, the, the physicists can, can uh, corroborate both perspectives. But regardless, the reason why I would say it's just because Christianity is a second quadrant and that's more rational and, and more, you know, second quadrant is more homeostasis and Hinduism is a fourth quadrant of the four world religions. And it's more philosophical and, and weird and doesn't seem to belong. But that's why, like any thoughts of that? No. In, in reality, the, there, there is in Christianity the belief that world without end amen is a is an affirmation that's made regularly in protestant churches yeah but but the, the you know stereotypically characteristically that's the way that christianity is but then we also know that if you really study the bible yogananda says no the bible's not incompatible with the hinduism and 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 it actually there what you know there is many gods according to the bible and there is infinite and there is reincarnation and then there's even hindus who would possibly say that you know according to hinduism that all that is not true maybe like some some of the some hindus only look at the vedas and they say that there's only the om god and, and they discount the puranas and stuff and and you know regardless it, and you could say that like okay the story is about there being many universes that's just a metaphor you know of brahma and it's just about the metaphor of you know letting go of your ego of you know thinking brahma thinking is special in in you know being arrogant and submitting. so, so again, it, it could be metaphorical. And and, and you know, there, there's Hindu atheists. If there's a there's a groups called Hindu atheists, like there's Jewish, you know, Jewish atheists, or you know, I think there's even a Christian atheist group. There is no Islam atheist group because Islam's the third quadrant. That's always you know kind of. But you know, there, there's Hindu. So my my point is, we see general characteristics, but but again, there, there's there, there's Within all the quadrants, there's overlap and inter interconnections. Inter like, any thoughts of that? No. Making more money and more taxes to feed the king. At any rate, the decline of the aristocracy was an important factor, but that took centuries. But above all, the most important factor was the scientific revolution of Copernicus, Bacon, Kepler, Galileo, Bruno, and Newton. For this had the effect of undermining the Aristotelian view of the natural world that scholasticism has adopted as its own. In other words, 
Aquinas took his Christianity, Christian theology, and he took Aristotle's theory of nature. He wove them together. That functioned quite well. The scientific revolution came along and started attacking, not Christianity, but attacking the Aristotelianism. But the Aristotelianism by now was woven together. So any attack on Aristotle came to be viewed as an attack on the whole thing, including religion. And that was what was dangerous about the scientific revolution. Now, it came in stages. First came the 1543 publication of Copernicus's on the revolution of celestial spheres. And in this book, Copernicus famously argued for the heliocentric system, which put the earth in motion and the sun at the center of the universe. You should mention Copernicus was not the first person to think of this, but Copernicus made the most convincing mathematical case for its validity. But now Copernicus could show that a heliocentric model was mathematically simpler than the mass of epicycles and complications that had been necessary to fudge the old geocentric Ptolemaic system into harmony with ever increasingly, with increasingly accurate observations. Copernicus only applied his work to our solar system, you should note. Copernicus did not apply it to the universe. But later thinkers- You see, but the, any thoughts on that, No. The, the thing with Copernicus, though, is he, he was still false. And actually, Ptolemy was still more accurate. So that's a pragmatist idea of, you know, the pragmatists, I say, like, is there molecules? Is there not? It doesn't matter. What one gives you the best outcomes in your predictions and stuff, right? And Ptolemy was, was actually more accurate in his predictions. Why? Because Copernicus still believed that the world traveled in circles and that the planets traveled in circles. He still held on to that Aristotelian idea of circles and that the, that the universe is perfect and travel, things travel in circles because circles are perfect. And that's what Galileo also thought. And so, so the church was right when they condemned Galileo because they're like, well, you know, Ptolemy's more accurate than you. Well, he, they, he, Ptolemy was more accurate because he still thought that things were in circles. He, and it was, only, it was only Kepler who recognized that things are traveling in ellipses. Any thoughts on that? No. Giordano Bruno speculated that as other members of the scientific revolution came a little after Copernicus, took it much further. Bruno speculated wildly that space was infinite, meaning not only it was the Earth not at the center of the universe, but there's no center at all. If, there's, if space is infinite, it doesn't have a center. Bruno also speculated that if that's true, if there's an infinity of space, there must be an infinity of planets. If there's an infinity of planets, there must be an infinity of inhabited planets. And if there's an infinity of inhabited planets, there must be an infinity of planets with ensouled beings like humans. In other words, other planets with, with um, uh, human life and human souls. Uh, for this level of speculation, he was burnt at the stake. He does that? No. Galileo, who supported the Copernican system, introduced a new science of mechanics, of matter in motion, understood to interact through material and efficient causes without reliance on what were called substantial forms or final causes. Substantial forms just means Aristotle's old notion that for anything, there is a qualitative essence that makes it what it is. That's the formal cause. And the final cause, of, co of course, is its purpose. The new science of mechanics initiated most prominently by Galileo drops any reference to substantial forms or final causes and rests its case on uniform motion and rest being dynamically equivalent, each being the result of zero net force, which is a particularly counterintuitive idea. That is the notion that uh, from Aristotle's point of view, uh, force and velocity were, had to be proportional. When the cart is sitting there with no horses pulling it, force is zero, velocity is zero. 
when we put horses on it and they start to pull, now there's force, so there's velocity. But Galileo, as we know, took a very different view. And all of modern science began with the view that acceleration is proportional to force, that dynamically speaking, in terms of the forces operating, when you have a situation where there are two, there's an object moving, uh, when there's an object at rest, and an object moving with uniform velocity in a straight line, for example, in a vacuum, those two cases are dynamically equivalent. In other words, there's both there's zero net force acting on both. This was a very counterintuitive idea, but it was the basis for the beginning of modern mechanics. Now, Galileo, as we know, got into trouble. He ridiculed the Pope in one of his publications and ended his days under house arrest. His elimination of, fin of final causes and substantial forms, though, was quite crucial. Because in effect, Galileo said, the explanation of the motion of a body does not depend on its nature. It depends on its mass, it depends on its uh, shape, but it doesn't depend on what kind of thing it is. Aristotle's qualitatively distinctive substantial forms don't matter anymore. Lastly came Newton in his epic marking mathematical principles of natural philosophy of 1687. This showed that the laws of motion of everyday objects in the world and the gravitational forces that controlled the movements of planets and stars were the same operating under a single set of force laws. With one blow, Newton had destroyed the division between the sublunar and the superlunar realm. Now notice once again, that this conflict that the new science introduced- Wait, that's like No. So this makes me, makes me think of Hegel, like Hegel talks about these dialectics where they have these diff different opposing viewpoints, then there's a synthesis and there's a new thing. But again, which one is real? Maybe what's real is the ideas, like this is what Berkeley was talking about, this is what Sridhar Maharaj was talking about, is the ideas, is this interplay of ideas which is transposed into existence, and, and it's an evolution of ideas which reality is corroborating with, and we create this synthesis, but this synthesis is really artificial. We still believe that there's an external world and stuff, but it's really just the universe in a leela, in a play, and that's a magnificent synthesis that Newton created, but it's not real. It's, it's a part of the Hegelian soul of existence playing with itself. And then through Newton creating these, this amalgamation of ideas that now correspond to a new vision of reality, but then existence is not going to be stagnant in that. It's going to continue to evolve and new ideas and new realities, you know, could continue to develop but there is one any thoughts of that no but there is one continuity which would be the quadrant but it's not between the new testament and the new science the new testament and the new science with some exceptions are pretty much two ships passing in the night they don't have an argument with each other the argument is because aristotelian scholasticism had over three centuries been adopted by the church as the theory of nature most compatible with christian Christianity. Uh, theology. It's the fact that they have been fitted together by people like Aquinas that makes the new science a threat. Also notice one thing, the new science, despite most people's uh, intuitive guesses, the new science is in some ways rather more platonic than Aristotelian. And here we might think of a marvelous old painting, one of the greatest paintings uh, with philosophers as its subject, Raphael's The School of Athens. In Raphael's School of Athens, we see many figures, actually figures from ancient Greek thought, uh, sitting around the steps of an enormous uh, uh, stadium. And uh, so, so Newton said is, you know, they used to think that there was, there was like, you know, the, the separate like 
supernal realm of the stars and everything, and it was our world. But Newton brought them together and said, well, no, it's, you know, the, 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 the sun, you know, the, the planets are going around because of acceleration, which is gravity, and it's all linked. And the same gravity on Earth is the same gravity in the heavens. And so he connected it all. He created a synthesis. Any thoughts? No. Now, now people, but then people think, okay, well, then this, 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 this discredits the, the religious notions. But I would say it doesn't. Both of them are true because there's still the quadrant and it's still not natural. You know, because then they come up with natural explanations. Well, what happened was the moon hit the earth and then, or some planet hit the earth and then it created the moon and then it's all random, but it's not random. There's a quadrant behind it all. But the thing is the naturalistic explanation and the supernatural explanation, they both have their flaws and they're both like, that's what I was getting at. The, the fundamentalist religious explanation, they're, they're both, but what's real is a quadrant. Any thoughts of that? No. What dominates the picture is in the center of the painting, there is are the figures of Plato and Aristotle. And Plato's figure, he's holding a copy of one of his books, the Timaeus, and with his other hand, he is pointing upward. Aristotle's figure, he's also holding a book, but in his other hand, he has his other hand stretched, palm open, palm down, and in a very simplistic way, but not an accurate way, this characterizes the difference between their philosophies. Plato believes not that this world is an illusion, but he believes it's only made intelligible by reference to the ideal forms which lie behind it, which are the true realities. Aristotle believes instead these physical substances that we interact with are the true reality. Okay. Well, you might imagine that modern science would be Aristotelian because it's not concerned with another world. It's concerned with our empirical knowledge of this world. Well, there's definitely something to be said for that. Aristotle said all knowledge comes through the senses. That's partly true. But look at what Galileo and Copernicus and Newton and others were saying. They were saying that the only way to understand these objects in this world is to turn away from your experience of them, from how they look day to day, and instead pay attention to an ideal mathematical reconstruction of those objects. Okay? Yeah, it does, I go. No. So that, that's what that's what uh, Einstein was all about. Einstein said that, that the truth of a theory a lot is in, in its beauty. And then he tried to encourage people to look for mathematics first and then look for the reality. So he kind of went against the empiricist, you know, reality viewpoint. But then people say, but he was also, you know, people kind of uh, look down upon that idea and say, well, Einstein really was empirical and stuff. But regardless, my point is that he, yeah, he, he was kind of like talk, taking the rationalism, so the empiricist viewpoint, that there, there is an idea that there is a mind of God. And then this world, it's kind of platonic. But then at the same time, why do we have to make the, the duality, the dichotomy? Like Aristotle and Plato are both right. Any thoughts of that? Yeah, that's, that's what I understand. So Plato had been highly uh, inspired by mathematics. Regarding Even though they're contradictory, which, you know, people say, well, they can't be true, but. Almost the highest form of knowledge. Um, and from Plato's point of view, for example, if all triangular shaped objects cease to exist today, does that mean that geometric entity triangle would cease to be? No, there would still be triangles. There just wouldn't be any yield signs. There wouldn't be any triangular shaped objects. From the point of view of the new science, unlike Aristotle, which was the new science being explicitly mathematical, which Aristotle science was not. Aristotle didn't think that mathematics was much use in terms of understanding the nature of, the nature of things. 
but the new science is exclusively mathematical. It describes just a few quantitative properties of a few objects and tries to find rules like mass, velocity, momentum that relate them to each other. While, while modern science does indeed depend on experimentation, it does not respect the unaided experience of the senses. After all, and this is what uh, opponents of the Copernican hypothesis said against Copernicus, they said, we don't feel the earth move. If the earth were turning at the rate you say it should, we ought to feel it, but we don't, okay? Galileo and Copernicus had to say, those sensory experiences of yours by which you don't feel the earth move are misleading. In fact, Galileo himself wrote approvingly that in the Copernican theory, reason had made what Galileo said was a rape of the senses. That modern science does not accord with our unaided senses. It accords with a mathematical theory of potentially unobservable entities that explain our sense experience. In other words, the new platonic but experimental science replaced the Aristotelian qualitative and purposive science that had become integrated with Christian thought. Now this leaves a grave problem. Hey, does it? No. So, and, and that's what I get at, like the play of reality. So like, you know, there's this idea, well, did, did we come from like creationism or did we come from, were there dinosaurs and stuff? And was it, you know, evolution and stuff? Well, reality is going to give you evidence of dinosaurs through fossils and stuff like that. But then it's also going to give you evidence of creation where people, it's going to give you evidence for the Mahabharata. It's going to give you evidence. It gives these evidence strains. And that's a part of the sense dream. The, the dream gives you the, so, yeah. So, but, but, but the, the point is though, it's these ideas though are being transposed into reality and it's allowing for, so the, your, your empirical data to give you, to, to lead you down these roads and, and lead you down these ideas. But still what's coming first, I think is, is the idea. And I think I've seen kind of reality as a play where it's kind of pulling you along. And, and it's like Hegelian synthesis, which one's right, which one's right. Then you finally realize, wait, it's Krishna. It's to play as a quadrant. Like any thoughts of that? Yeah, or it's, it's the cosmic ballet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, doesn't it? No. How are we to make the new science compatible with religion and the soul and the human mind and freedom and morality? For the new science is claiming that the universe is a set of material objects, maybe made out of tiny atoms, maybe larger objects, which move according to mechanical laws of motion. If that's true of the lectern and of the earth and of the moon, it must be true of me as well. But what does that have to say about my mind, my freedom, my morality, and my soul? Thank you. Okay, that's enough for today. All right. Thank you. No. All right. All right. Okay, later.